Hello, my name is Drajan Petrovic. I'm the registrar of the Administrative Tribunal of International Labour Organization. And today I will have a pleasure and honor to uh, present to you one of the, of the oldest existing international institutions, which is uh, the Administrative Tribunal of the International Labour Organization. Uh, let me start with a couple of remarks about creation of tribunal. Uh, I think there were two reasons that I can identify for uh, creation of this tribunal. One was internal, one was external to, um, to the organization they created. At the end of the First World War, by the Versailles Treaty, there were two organizations created, League of Nations and International Labor Organization. They were both uh, moved from Paris through uh, some negotiations to Geneva and established their headquarters of Secretariat of the National Labor Office in Geneva. So Switzerland as a whole state was faced with, uh, with a challenge how to define legal status of these two new established uh, organizations on its territory. Um, one should uh, remember that uh, Covenant of League of Nations did not define the legal status of the organization. It defined diplomatic privileges and immunities only for representatives of member states and of the officials or agents, as was the expression at the time, of the League of Nations, but did not say anything about legal status of the organization itself. So that legal status was defined by the Swiss government in 1921 and 1926 through, to, through exchange of letter, letters between the Secretary General of uh, League of Nations and the Swiss Federal Council. Uh, it is called Modus Vivendi of 21 and Modus Vivendi of 26. And basically with the first one, the Swiss government said that uh, League of Nations should be treated as, as, a, as a state and that uh, it should be given legal status in Switzerland as a foreign state, which means that uh, normally administrative and judicial institutions of, uh, of Switzerland would not be competent to deal with affairs of League of Nations and um, although the Switzerland, the Switzerland offered access to its tribunals and courts, uh, basically through these exchanges of letters it, uh, was established for the first time immunity of jurisdiction of international organizations on the territory of a whole state. That practically had as consequence that uh, officials of League of Nations and International Labour Office could not seek justice before uh, tribunals of Canton de Genève or of Swiss, uh, Swiss tribunals. So uh, there was, uh, uh, of course, as a counterpart, there was an uh, idea that uh, within League of Nations and within international labor organization, there should be a mechanism that would enable settlement of disputes that may arise between officials and uh, administration of the League or administration of International Labor Office. 
So that brings us to a second element, which is now internal to the creation of this tribunal, uh, probably enthusiastic about new world order that was created by Treaty of uh, Versailles. Uh, member states did not provide for sophisticated mechanism of resolving disputes between staff and management in, in those two organizations. There was only one possibility provided for in, uh, uh, in the staff regulations of the League of Nations that people with a contract of five years who were dismissed could address their appeal to Council of League of Nations. Um, probably the idea was that this would never happen and there was no need for any, any conflictual situation within uh, this newly created uh, International Civil Service. Well, as a matter of fact, in 1925, uh, an official of the Secretariat of League of Nations, a certain Mr. Mono, uh, made a complaint because he was dismissed. Uh, and he made a complaint to Council of League of Nations. Council nominated an arbitration of three lawyers, and uh, it was obvious that Council itself would not be able to deal with, with this individual case and was not uh, suited to, to deal with individual cases. So uh, Council created an arbitration of three lawyers and accepted to execute whatever award would that arbitration make. To cut it short, Mr. Monod won and um, Council honored uh, its obligation or its commitment. But what is interesting that that triggered uh, discussion, what should be mechanism available to officials to uh, protect their rights within uh, League of Nations and International Labour Organization. Those discussions uh, resulted with the creation of uh, administrative tribunal of the League of Nations, which was the first ever international administrative tribunal, and uh, under its jurisdiction were also officials of the International Labour Organization, so that was created through joint effort of two organizations. Uh, that was done in September 1927, so last year this tribunal celebrated 90 years of its existence and uh, there was a big event organized in Geneva in headquarters of the ILO to celebrate this 19th uh, anniversary. Uh, so uh, there was... Uh, um, what was interesting is that um, between two wars, so in 90, between 95 and 1927, member states uh, considered that there was a right of every person to have access to a judge to contest an administrative decision. So that's long before universal instruments of human rights. Uh, that spirit was already present in the in, in the, within League of Nations and member states had this idea. Um, tribunal started working in 1927 and then, uh, well, as you know, there was a, a Second World War and the end of Second World War, after the demise of League of Nations, the tribunal was taken over by International Labour Organization. So for the ILO, that was continuation of being subject to jurisdiction of this tribunal. 
actually one of the latest resolutions of the Assembly of League of Nations and one of the first post-war resolutions of the International Labour Conference regulated this uh, uh, switch between two organizations um, already at the time of Le the already League of Nations changed the statute of tribunal to to a name of tribunal to call it administrative tribunal of the International Labour Organization. Um, the ILO took over organization at its highest level, so it is not organ of the Secretariat, it is organ of the organization, the one that is not uh, mentioned in the Constitution, but it is established on the level of, of the highest level of representative organ, which is International Labour Conference. Uh, that organ uh, adopts and can modify statute of tribunal, and it is that organ that also elects judges of the tribunal. Uh, so ILO was pretty alone in 1946. Uh, that was it has its own tribunal, and then in 1948, uh, when World Health Organization uh, was created and, and uh, established its headquarters in Geneva, uh, they requested ILO uh, permission to recognize its tribunal, uh, not to create its own. Uh, for that purpose, um, International Labour Conference modified the Statute of Tribunal to enable other organizations to recognize competence of the, of the Tribunal. And the only requirement was that they made request to the ILO Director General and that request be approved by the ILO governing body. Uh, most of other specialized agencies of the United Nations followed WHO, so under jurisdiction of tribunal, uh, there were basically all specialized agencies except uh, International Maritime Organization and Civil Aviation Organization, and since end of last year, now World Meteorological Organization is also with the UN system of justice. All other specialized agencies, UN specialized agencies, are covered by jurisdiction of this tribunal. In addition, uh, as, as the statute was modified not to allow only UN organizations, but any other international intergovernmental organization, uh, CERN was the first uh, uh, non-UN international organization to recognize the competence of tribunal. And now there are about uh, 60 organizations that recognize competence of tribunal. So, as I said, there were specialized, there are specialized agencies of the UN. Then there are other international, universal international organizations. Uh, let me just mention a couple of them. Uh, there is a World Trade Organization. Uh, there is a International Criminal Court. Uh, there is International Organization of Migration. Uh, there is Global Fund uh, to fight uh, AIDS, uh, malaria and tuberculosis. Uh, there is uh, Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. So it is, it, is, uh, it is a wide range of organizations that are not uh, necessarily, that there are even some technical organizations, kind of like International Organization of Wine and Wine. Uh, there are some organizations, think tanks like South, uh, South Center based in Geneva. So there is a wide range of non-UN organizations covered by the competence of tribunal. 
Then there are some organizations, uh, the, the statute was changed further to enable even non-governmental international organizations, but who, have, who are international in character and who are composed not necessarily of representatives of governments to recognize competence of tribunal. So you have organizations like Interpol or International Federation of Red, Red Cross and Red Crescent. Uh, in addition, you have several European organizations like Eurocontrol or European Patent Office who also recognize competence of this tribunal. So I would say this tribunal is one of the most powerful institutions in international law because it can review decisions of executive heads, so final decisions taken by executive heads of those organizations, and it can issue binding judgments that are binding for 60 organizations. Um, all these organizations have to follow case law, have to adapt their practices to the case law of tribunal, and uh, it, that's why I think that tribunal is one of the major players of what we call international governance. Um, not necessarily very, very well known. So let me talk, that was about jurisdiction. Let me talk a little bit about competence of tribunal. Competence ratione materie is, as defined in Article 2 of the Statute of Tribunal, is uh, to hear complaints, and I quote here, alleging non-observance in substance or in form of the terms of appointment of officials of the International Labor Office and of such provisions of the staff regulations as are applicable to the case. There is also corresponding uh, paragraph for other organizations here that was limited to officials of the ILO, that was uh, uh, Article 2, Paragraph 2, and then there is Article 2, Paragraph 5, with basically the same content. So what this article can tell us is, the first is that there is no designation of organ who takes that decision. That means the tribunal can uh, can review the whole series of decisions that affect an individual that can be taken by administration, but they can also be taken by different organs of those organizations. And that can be also taken by organs representative of member states. I think it is interesting because um, some other tribunals have limited competence to review decisions taken by assemblies or by, by councils where member states sit. Uh, second, this provision tells us a little bit about possible applicable law. An applicable law before tribunal is combination of individual contractual provisions and statutory provisions that were adopted by, by member states or that were adopted by executive head but that are addressed to a known number of officials, so beyond individual decision. The, the contractual part is, of course, contract that every individual signs with the organization. That's an employment contract. That's what is referred to as terms of appointment in the statute. And in that contract, uh, organization and individual concern define some basic conditions of uh, of uh, employment like grade, duration, salary, and uh, applicable individual rights. On the other hand, you have the statutory provisions that, uh, that, that are on which staff members do not have such great influence 
and that are adopted as general framework. So this tribunal can also review those uh, provisions and can see whether behavior of administration and individual decisions are taken in conformity with those general decisions. Then there is a, a tribunal, obviously, like any judicial institution, established uh, its general principles. It was, uh, that is, this cohesive factor of 60 written applicable laws uh, adopted within each organization. And this cohesion factor is our general principles. So tribunal uh, relies on general principles of law, but also created general principles of law of international civil service. Uh, finally, the tribunal also recognized practice as, uh, as any new or um, uh, newly created legal system within each international organization. Of course, it is incomplete and to fill the gaps, uh, organizations relied on, its own, on their own practice. And that practice is recognized by the tribunal to the extent that they do not contradict uh, written rules. Competence ratione persone is limited to officials, as, as, uh, as was mentioned in Article 2 of the statute, uh, competence of tribunal is limited to officials. Who is official is a question that is normally defined uh, by internal rules of the organization, but sometimes tribunal had to define uh, on its own who can be considered as official, which is, of course, a term that is uh, to be distinguished from the term of agent or for the term of staff member of, of an organization. So, for example, an executive head, uh, so chief of secretariat, of chief of the administration, uh, it was a question whether that person could also be defined as uh, official. And in one case involving uh, OPCW, uh, when Director General of PCW was fired by um, member states, well, uh, that person came to tribunal, uh, filed a complaint, complaint was declared receivable, and uh, that person won case before tribunal. Recently, there were two, two judgments, uh, two cases, uh, on pension rights of judges of International Criminal Court, it was not obvious that judges could be considered as officials, but the tribunal declared that they have status of official. They were not staff members, but they were officials of the court, accepted competence and issued judgments in favor of those two judges. Then competence ratione temporis is from the moment that each organization's application is approved by the ILO governing body until the moment that um, uh, organization communicates its decision to withdraw from jurisdiction of tribunal and governing body takes corresponding decision. That is the competence uh, ratione temporis. Conditions of reservability of complaints are uh, that uh, official has exhausted internal means of address, which implicitly meant that organizations were encouraged or almost obliged to create mechanism for settlement of disputes within the organization. So all kinds of advisory organs that result in a final decision of executive head that is normally challengeable before tribunal. So 
the statute of tribunal requires officials to go through this process, obtain final decision or implicit rejection in certain circumstances, and then only then come to tribunal. Second uh, requirement for reservability, limit of reservability, is that a complaint is filed within 90 days from the date that the final decision was notified to the official concerned. Recent, those uh, two conditions can be found in Article 7, Paragraphs 1 and 2 of the Statute of Tribunal. And recently, Tribunal also clarified in its case law that uh, condition for receivability could be also cause of action that the person may have uh, with regard to what is raised in a complaint. Now, let me tell you a little bit more who are judges here in Tribunal. Uh, first, there were three, now there are seven. Contrary to some other tribunals, they were not called members of tribunal, but they were from the beginning called judges, and uh, there, is, uh, uh, there is good reason for that. Uh, first, they have, um, I, I believe, that uh, judges of this tribunal have uh, very solid professional credibility, uh, because the ILO from the beginning opted for recruiting judges. So people do not become judges because they are nominated to tribunal, but there must be judges before they are even considered uh, for nomination in tribunal. They are normally holding high judicial function in their respective countries. Uh, they normally have experience of, uh, of uh, administrative law and of labor law, and they have to have at least passive knowledge of um, another language, so they, they have to speak both English and French because those are uh, working languages of tribunal. Um, I find this interesting because um, in international law, very often as, as, uh, as experts or, or judges were nominated professors of international law, and I opted for a totally different approach, and I would say rightly so, because judges of supreme jurisdictions of member states would have judged and had to deal with organizations if we didn't have immunity of jurisdiction. So I think it is nice counterpart for immunity of jurisdiction that uh, international organizations enjoy in member states. There is some guarantee for those member states that the same level of professionals, professional approach would be applied by judges that are nominated to this tribunal as that it would be applied by their own jurisdictions. Um, there, is, there are now seven judges. They come from uh, Supreme Courts of Italy, France, uh, Canada, Australia, St. Kitts and Nevis, Côte d'Ivoire, and Belgium. There is no predetermined uh, geographical distribution. There is no predetermined number of states or uh, who, who nominate judges or who propose judges. And the only condition is that two judges do not come from the same country. Then those judges enjoy, I would say, very high political uh, legitimacy or legitimacy because they are elected by International Labour Conference that is Parliament of Labour, where you have beyond governments, you have representatives of workers and employers, and if there is anyone competent to, to decide 
what are the best persons to be dealing with labor issues within international organizations, I believe that that is International Labor Conference. Uh, I think it is important also to say that, this, uh, that there is no one single decision within the tribunal that is taken by one judge. There is always a panel of at least three judges that takes all decisions and adopts uh, judgments. And it is interesting because they come from different legal traditions, they come from different uh, legal backgrounds, uh, they come from different cultural backgrounds. And it is interesting how they arrive at common decisions and how they compromise in arriving to judgment. Uh, I have to say dissenting opinions are possible in tribunal, but they are extremely rare. And I think it is important because that gives some kind of legal stability to, uh, to parties before tribunal, to organizations, to staff unions, to know exactly what is the law. Uh, decisions, so what type of uh, decisions tribunal can issue and what kind of measures it can adopt is pursuant to Article 8 of the statute, it can rescind the final decision. That is very strong power, which means that person can be reinstated in the post. Someone whose employment was terminated can be reinstated, in other words, imposed back to the organization. Uh, the tribunal can also order specific uh, performance that is on which the person relied in, uh, in, in rights, uh, can award material damage, can award moral damages, and can award costs, uh, both in favor of the complainant and also in case of vexatious complaints against the complainant. Decisions of judgments of tribunal are final, they are uh, without appeal and they are res judicata. However, in Article 6 of the statute, there is provision enabling tribunal to review applications for review, for interpretation or for execution. Uh, the tribunal has developed grounds on which those applications can be based and what could be admissible and what is inadmissible ground for each of these applications in its case law and it is only recently that this was legislated in the statute of tribunal. In the past there was possibility to request advisory opinion of the International Court of Justice regarding judgments of tribunal um, if uh, questioning whether a tribunal properly assessed its competence to hear a complaint. This possibility was used only twice in the history. The first time, it was in 1956. There was a request for advisory opinion formulated by UNESCO regarding judgments 17, 18, 19, and 21 uh, about the possibility of the Director General of UNESCO to terminate a fixed-term appointment and assess interest of the organization in terminating appointment. The, the ICJ confirmed that tribunal properly assessed its competence uh, in this advisory opinion. The second advisory opinion was issued in 2012. It was on the request of IFAD and it, uh, it was on the judgment 2867 of the tribunal. Uh, again, ICJ confirmed uh, com competence, uh, that, that tribunal properly assessed its own competence. Following 
serious critics that ICJ expressed about uh, legality of Article 12 of the statute in 2016, International Labour Conference just deleted Article 12 from the, from the statute of tribunal. Now, let me just make a couple of final remarks. Uh, what are uh, some characteristics that are peculiar for uh, international civil service and that result from the case law and from the jurisprudence of this tribunal. First was um, um, something that may be strange for commercial lawyers. It is that um, many contracts of employment in international organizations are fixed term, so they have predefined duration. But uh, so normally contract expires at its expiry date and there is no need for any particular procedure. That date is known from the beginning and uh, the contract ends uh, at that date. Well, the tribunal said that the career of many international civil servants was actually uh, a succession of these fixed term contracts. So at the end of each of those contracts, there is actually double decision. One is to terminate this contract, but another is not to renew a contract. And it, in its case law, the tribunal requested that organizations justify this decision of non-renewal of fixed-term contracts. In other words, to provide uh, timely notification so that person concerned can organize her or his life and family life especially. And the second requirement is that there be a valid reasons for non-renewal of the contract. Uh, in its case law, the tribunal determined what are those valid reasons of be it of structural, financial uh, reasons or performance appraisals and, and similar. The second uh, peculiar characteristic of law of international civil service is a notion of acquired rights. It has in its origin the fact that those who are concerned uh, with, uh, with rights, namely officials of international organizations, do not have any possibility to participate in definitions of their rights because normally this is done by member states. And this is done by organs in which staff members are not represented. So contrary to national legal systems where you have laws adopted by parliaments, but then workers of that country can influence legislator, here officials cannot influence legislator, and to protect their rights, uh, the tribunal very early, even tribunal of League of Nations, in one of the first judgments, uh, defined acquired rights, and it is, uh, it is uh, it, it, those acquired rights have uh, a reference to conditions agreed at the beginning of the contract, so at the beginning of employment. Uh, acquired rights would be violated if the balance of contractual obligations is uh, distorted or uh, they concern rights that alter fundamental terms of employment in consideration of which the official accepted or an appointment or on which subsequently, which subsequently induced her or him to stay on. I'm now quoting from judgment 3876 recently adopted by a tribunal. This is something that is not necessarily known in national systems, that you can't change 
conditions of employment by law, but you have to preserve certain rights, and it goes beyond the uh, principle of non-retroactivity. And the third uh, peculiar, maybe, uh, elemental characteristics I would like to stress is insistence on uh, principle to pater legem quam ipse, ipse fascisti, in other words, that um, uh, that organization has to abide to the rules that itself established. Um, as the parties in this employment relationship between organization and an individual are pretty much unequal, the tribunal insists on the on the respect of applicable rules in each individual case, and that is a uh, that is a way that some arbitrary behavior can be avoided. So I think that the tribunal has a vital role in the protection of officials against any uh, arbitrary or, or unfair um, behavior of uh, administration of international organizations and therefore really crucial for maintaining immunities of jurisdiction of those organizations. Uh, th this is the only judge to which uh, international civil servants can, can address, well, in this case, of those of 60 organizations that are covered by jurisdiction of tribunal. And, uh, and as, as one can imagine, there was, uh, there was quite often resort to services of this tribunal. So uh, the database of, uh, of, the, of the tribunal that is available on tribunal's website contains almost 4,000 judgments, and, uh, including those 37 that were adopted by the administrative tribunal of the League of Nations. I can only hope that this tribunal uh, will be there for many years and will be available to even higher number of international civil servants and would continue to give proper advice to proper functioning of international organizations covered by its jurisdiction. I thank you very much for the attention.